Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 35. Psalm 35 will be the psalm we are looking at together this morning. As we have been making our way through book one of the Psalms, we have We've had different emphases throughout, sometimes more of a doctrinal emphasis, another thematic emphasis, and other times really trying to see and focusing upon fulfillment and how a particular psalm points to Christ and is fulfilled in Him. And that's especially what, us, what I want us to, to look at and see this morning as we work through this psalm, Psalm 35, I want you to recognize that this, this ultimately is about Christ. It is penned, written at the hand of David, but it is not only about his life, but ultimately about the life of Christ, and it is fulfilled in him. So we'll, we'll focus especially on that this morning, but we'll begin by reading the whole psalm together. Psalm 35, beginning in verse 1, of course, written by David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we read, beginning in verse 1, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in His salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like You, delivering the poor from Him who is too strong for Him, the poor and needy from Him who robs Him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will You look on? Rescue me from their destruction. My precious life from the lions. I will thank You and the great congregation and the mighty throng. I will praise You. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For They do not speak peace. But against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. 
Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my calls, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are a God of righteousness. You're a God who has a holy, righteous hatred for what is wicked, what is unjust, sinful, and ungodly. And long ago in the life of David, you entrusted judgment into his hands, appointing him as your anointed king in Israel. And his life was but a foreshadowing of his son who would come to whom all judgment has been entrusted in heaven and on earth. And like David, he was afflicted with many sorrows and persecuted unjustly. He bore the shame and scoffing that came from the mouths of wicked men, many of whom knew no better And yet He did so gracefully. He did so in accordance with Your will. He did so knowing that it would ultimately bring about a securing of righteousness and salvation for His people. And knowing that on the other side of the cross would be glory and an eternal throne. And though He bear much scoffing, though He was despised of men, He continued throughout His life and ministry to do them good. As even now, He bears patiently with His enemies and with sinners like us, calling us to repentance that we may be saved and awaiting for the day of judgment to come when He will bring an end to all evil. So Lord, I pray this morning that as we consider the words of Your prophet, David, we would see much of Christ in them. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our psalm this morning is Obviously, as we read through it, an imprecatory psalm. It is a psalm that calls upon the Lord to bring curses against enemies. It is a psalm in which, among other things, David is petitioning the Lord to bring his arm of judgment down upon all of those who opposed him and persecuted him. And as such, it is a psalm that does tend to cause a bit of uneasiness among Christians, especially as we think of the words of our Lord. We are to pray for our enemies. But besides considering the use and the function of imprecatory prayers for 
Christians, which we have looked at before, as we've seen similar psalms elsewhere, perhaps it would be the case that some of the uneasiness would be alleviated if we recognized that this psalm is also very much about and fulfilled in the life of Christ. And therefore, it is not in any way a contradiction to His teachings and His own works. In many ways, as the Holy Spirit spoke through David, He prophesied of the life of the second David who was to come. That of Christ. And I think that's probably the most important thing to see here before any questions about imprecatory prayers can ever be answered accurately or sufficiently. We need to see Christ in the Psalms. And we have aimed at seeing Christ in the Psalms. And we can indeed see Him most clearly here. Christ Himself, in fact, quotes this very psalm and its close parallel, Psalm 69, as being fulfilled in Him when He was speaking to His disciples about the hatred of the Jews towards Him in John 15. Throughout the psalm, David speaks of being hated without cause. Verse 7, for example, says, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. In verse 19, he says, Let not those rejoice over me. And then at the end of the verse, who hate me without cause. This is a theme that is likewise repeated in Psalm 69. A psalm, one of the psalms that is most quoted throughout the New Testament as being fulfilled in Christ. And in Psalm 69, verse 4, for example, we read there something similar. It says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. And ultimately, when Jesus is speaking about His rejection by the Jews and their hatred of Him, when He's speaking about the guilt that they have because of their unrighteous, unjustified, and unholy hatred Against him. He says in John 15, verse 25, that these things had to happen. This rejection had to happen. This coming to his own and his own receiving him not had to happen because he says the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Referring to the words and the themes of Psalm 35 and 69. So this is a psalm that Christ very clearly takes upon His own lips as being fulfilled in Him and is therefore a psalm that should in fact point us to Him. And only after seeing how He is the great subject of the psalm and how He is its ultimate author and its fulfillment, only then can we understand how it applies to us who have now been united to Him by faith. Now, at the very end of the psalm, David who is, of course, the one who by the Spirit writes the psalm, he refers to himself as the Lord's servant. He says, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. And this is a title 
that is frequently used almost as a kind of technical term to refer to a prophet who is appointed by the Lord to lead His people. This is not here just a generic term, as it can be used sometimes in other contexts, just to refer to all those who belong to the Lord. This is a specific title. Moses, for example, is called the servant of the Lord, which is a description that is uniquely given to him among the people of Israel. Joshua, who succeeds him and who receives the spirit that had been upon him, is likewise called the servant of the Lord. David, further on, is referred to as the servant of the Lord in Psalms 18 and 36. And of course, Isaiah prophesies of the future king. The coming Messiah who would rule over God's people and rule over the world. He refers to Him as the servant. The servant ultimately, as we see in Isaiah 53, who would be the suffering servant. This is an important title to keep in mind because it directly links for us David to Christ. And so as we work this work through this particular psalm together, we'll we'll consider it from the vantage point of the Lord's servant. There's four themes about the servant that I want us to look at this morning that will help us to see Christ more clearly. And the first theme concerns the persecution of the servant. The persecution of the servant. Throughout the psalm, we find David writing about the persecution he suffered at the hands of wicked men. Men like Saul and Shimei and Ahithophel and even later his own son Absalom. And we can see him speaking about this persecution in several places. If you look at verse 4, for example, he speaks of those who devise evil against Him. They're making it up. They're plotting things against Him. In verses 7 and 19, again, as we've already seen, they they are hating Him without a cause. There's no justifiable, warranted reason to be against David. In verse 11, he speaks there of malicious or violent witnesses rising up against him. In verses 15 and 16, they are gathering together against him. They are rejoicing to see him fall. It it makes their hearts merry to even think of the downfall of the Lord's servant, and they gnash at him with their teeth. That's a, that's a hatred. You know, it's the same phrase that we find Jesus even using of those who end up in the lake of fire in judgment, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, you need to remember, that's not gnashing of teeth because they're in pain. That's gnashing of teeth because even in judgment, the wicked despise God. There is no repentance, friends, that ever happens in hell. The same hatred that was abiding in the heart of fallen sinful man on earth continues into the judgment. And we see again here this vile hatred that David's enemies have for him. These were experiences that occurred, of course, at multiple points in David's life. We just considered last week the fact of Saul hating him without cause, even though David had showed him such love. And from the passage that we read earlier from 1 Samuel 24, we learn of malicious witnesses who were in Saul's ear spewing out all kinds of lies 
about David. Saying that he had impure motives and intentions against Saul when that never entered into his mind. As we read earlier, when David had an opportunity to kill Saul, he of course refrained from doing so because it was not the will of the Lord that Saul would die at the hands of David. And so David spares Saul's life when he was hiding out in a cave. But on this occasion, when David was proving his innocence to Saul, he called out to him and he rebuked him for listening to men who were around him and telling him, Behold, David seeks your harm. These are Saul's counselors. These are the men who know nothing about who David is. They hate him. They are whisperers and slanderers. These were men who probably for reasons known only to themselves and God were stirring Saul on to believe that David was against him. But it was a lie. There was no justification for it. It was a fabrication meant only to harm the Lord's servant. He was innocent of all the charges and his conscience was clean. In verse 11, David even says of these witnesses, they ask of me things that I do not know. In other words, the the charges that are being leveled against him, the accusations and the interrogations were about matters that had never entered into his mind on a single occasion. And of course, we come to the Gospels and we see Christ, the very same thing happened to him. The scribes and the Pharisees were constantly plotting about how to kill him in response to witnessing him doing good. He's healing people, giving sight to the blind, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He is walking in the ways of righteousness set before Him by His Father in heaven. And as the scribes and Pharisees are observing the goodness of this man, they hate Him. And they want Him dead. They were enraged by the works that He would do and the things that He would say. They even charged Him with doing good things by the power of Satan. Yes, you've worked a miracle. No one can deny that. You did it by Beelzebub. And in the most humiliating moment of Jesus' life, when He had to stand trial as an innocent man, we are told of false, malicious witnesses that were brought against Him. Matthew 26, verse 59 says that the chief priests and the whole council, the the Sanhedrin, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. There were no legitimate charges to be brought against Him. And so they had to hire wicked men to bear false testimony And a kind of testimony that even then wasn't sufficient in the eyes of a man like Pilate. The very men who claimed to be followers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the very men who who claimed to be upholding the righteousness of the Ten Commandments broke the law by bearing false witness against Christ. And this also leads us to another important theme in this psalm, which is fulfilled in Christ, which has to do with the innocence 
of the servant. The innocence of the servant. Not only does David write about being persecuted, but he describes his innocence as the servant of the Lord all throughout. He speaks, of course, about his enemies hating him without cause, as we've already seen. But further down in verse 12, he expands on this even more. He says, they repay, they repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. Again, David honored a man like Saul. And even when he had the power and the capability to bring calamity to Saul's entire house by not only killing Saul, but by killing everyone who belonged to his family, which would have been his right as the king executing judgment against the wicked house of another king. Even when it was in, within his grasp and capability to do so, he held back his hand and even made a promise to never cut off any of the offspring of Saul's house. And when he showed this kindness to Saul, even Saul had to admit and did admit to David, you are more righteous than I. He said, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Even the wicked were forced to confess that David was good and righteous towards them. As also it will be the case for all the wicked who are judged by Christ. Though they gnash their teeth in hell, they will never be able to say that the Lord's judgments were unrighteous. They will confess that the Lord is God and all of His ways were good. While they will still continue as his enemies, as even it was the case with Saul towards David. The wicked, we see, are forced to confess that David was good, and yet they continued to repay him with evil, such that he said of his soul that it was overwhelmed with sorrow. David speaks further in verses 13 and 14 about how he prayed for his enemies. When they were sick, he afflicted himself. He wore sackcloth and he fasted and he prayed. He grieved for them, he says, as one grieves for a friend or a brother or a mother. He, he had real sorrow and anguish for those who hated him. Their burdens and their sorrows and their pains and their griefs, he took upon himself. As we even saw last week, when Saul was afflicted by a tormenting spirit, when he was ill, David ministered to him and served him. He was full of humility. True biblical humility. The kind that considers the needs of others greater than your own. And even though David was not without his own sins, he was completely innocent in the matter of the charges that were being brought against him. And this, of course, foreshadows what would come upon Christ in an even greater way. Because unlike David, Christ was actually sinless completely. There were no hidden sins of the heart. He is pure in Himself. 
Not a single charge could be justified against Him either from men or from Satan or anyone. He is the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. He is the image, Paul tells us, of the invisible God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the servant of the Lord whose righteousness far surpassed all who came before Him or who will ever come after Him because His righteousness is within Himself. His heart is pure. His hands are innocent. His deeds are all done in love and in perfect obedience to the will of the Father even unto death. And much like David, the Lord Jesus did great things for his enemies. The very people who would reject him from places like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he came to them first, preaching good news, healing their sick, restoring sight to their blind, and giving hearing to their death. Many of the 5,000 who were miraculously fed by Him would eventually abandon and reject Him when He began preaching hard truths to them, and yet He fed them anyways. They abandoned Him on virtually the same day. And even though He knew this would occur, He feeds them in their hunger. He knew that Judas Iscariot was a betrayer. And yet, he welcomed him into the company of his disciples and even allowed his betrayer to greet him with a kiss when the betrayer's trap had been laid. And even though he had authority and the capability to call down ten legions of angels from heaven, to strike down Him and all who were with Him in a moment. He allows Judas' actions to continue on. He continued to show Him good through His whole ministry, knowing what would come. And of course, we who have come to know Christ since that day were at one time His enemies at enmity with God. We were children of wrath. Sons of Adam. And what did He do for us? He bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. He offered Himself as a sacrifice. He atoned for our iniquities. And He ever lives to make intercession for us. In the same way that he prayed for Peter, knowing that Peter would deny him three times, he prayed for Peter that Peter would not ultimately fall as Judas would. And he interceded for him so that he would be able to restore him. He does the same for you and me. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He afflicted Himself by bearing the wrath of God against us. And He prays for us so that we might not fall. Christ does good to His enemies. There is no disputing that. We are the chief examples of that. We who were enemies have now in Christ and by faith in Him been made sons of God and heirs to His promises. But Christ, likewise, does not deal with all His enemies in the same way. He deals with them according to the will of His Father much like David dealt with his enemies according to the will of God. 
And this leads us to a third theme in the psalm, which concerns the prayer for justice by the servant. The prayer for justice by the servant. David's innocence and his unjust persecution is well established and seen throughout this psalm. And it is the fact that he is innocent and the fact that he entrusts justice into the hands of God that leads him to pray against and for the downfall of those who are maliciously trying to kill him. These imprecations in the psalm, these prayers against his enemies are not prayers of a man who has lost all rationale and lost all emotional control. They're not the prayers of a man who has resolved to no longer do good to his enemies. Remember, at the same time that David is praying these prayers and entrusting judgment to God, he's doing good to them. It is the fact that he entrusts himself to the works of God and His justice that allows Him to do good to His enemies. These are not the prayers of a man who has lost control. No, they are prayers of a man who can continue to do good because he trusts in God. That's what we find him saying in the very beginning of this psalm. He here, in verse 1, is calling upon the Lord. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with Me. Fight against those who fight against Me. He is not asking the Lord for permission to take up arms against His persecutors. He is calling on the Lord to ready Himself for battle. As the servant of the Lord especially, what happens to David reflects on God. Reflects truths about God. David is the Lord's anointed. The Lord had promised to establish His throne. To raise Him up. To give him success over his enemies. The Lord had removed his spirit from Saul and given the spirit to David. It was David's house, not Saul's, that would be established. And so if David falls, and if his enemies conquer him, if they are able to say as they want to say in verse 25, Aha! Our heart's desire. We have swallowed Him up. If they have victory over Him and He falls, then God's promises fall. His Word is proved to be false. And the name of God will be blasphemed. Because they are bound together. What happens to the servant reflects upon the name of the living God. And so as David prays for the destruction of his enemies, his prayers are in line with the will and promises of God, and he is calling on the Lord to do nothing more than what he said he would do. So in his prayers, what does he say? Verse 4, He says of the wicked. He says of his enemies. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Or in verse 5, let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. This is a prayer that is asking nothing more than what is promised 
to happen to the obstinately rebellious in Psalms 1 and in Psalm 2. Psalm 1 verse 4 says, The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away, and they will not stand in the judgment. Psalm 2 verse 9, the Lord says there of His anointed King concerning His enemies, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The judgments of the Lord against the wicked of the earth are closely bound together with their relationship to His King. So that to be against the Lord's King is to be against the Lord Himself. And to be for the Lord's King is to be for the Lord Himself. David, in his prayers, is therefore identifying who his enemies are. Who the obstinately rebellious are. Who are those who are against Him and stubbornly so? And He's calling upon the Lord to execute His judgments against them. And lest we think that Jesus was any different, it is worth remembering that Jesus Himself did and will do much the same thing. When He performed His mighty works and He proclaimed the message of salvation and the good news of the kingdom to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and they rejected Him, they were obstinate in their unbelief. What did He say of them? He pronounced a curse against them. Matthew 11, verse 21-24, to He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. When judgment comes upon you, because you've rejected the Lord's Messiah, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because the works that were done in you, had they been done in Tyre and Sidon, would have brought about repentance. They never even had the opportunity to see the things that you are seeing. And now you are seeing them and rejecting them. Woe be to you. For the day of judgment will not be a tolerable thing for you. He says likewise to Capernaum. And you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. And he added, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now when we think of the worst cities imaginable in the Old Testament, we think of Sodom. And Jesus is saying of Capernaum, it will be worse for you than it will be for Sodom because of the things you have seen and have rejected. Or you'll remember as well, that peculiar moment when He came to Jerusalem not long before He would be crucified and He saw a fig tree. And when He looked at it, He saw that it bore no fruit. He wanted fruit from it. There was no fruit there. And this is not just some random observation on the part of the Gospel writers that they just wanted to tell us about this strange moment in Jesus' life where He got frustrated with a fig tree. The fruitless fig tree, rather, was a symbolic figure of the fruitlessness and the spiritual bankruptcy of the city of Jerusalem. 
of its inhabitants, of the people who had rejected their Messiah, much like we find in Isaiah 5 when the Lord portrays Israel as a fruitless vineyard that must and will be destroyed. And Jesus looked at the fig tree which bore no fruit, symbolizing Jerusalem, and He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. He curses His enemies who rejected Him and who will crucify Him. He's calling judgment down upon her because she had rejected the King. And similarly, when it is a, the appointed time for the day of the Lord's judgment against all the earth, it will be King Jesus who stands as judge against it, saying, as David says here, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. That will be the pronounced judgment you stand against the Lord's anointed, against His righteous, innocent, pure servant, then when judgment comes and you find yourself as an enemy of the King, you will be cast out of His kingdom and there will be no disputing of the righteousness of His judgments. There will be no arguments that you can make to say to Him that this eternal punishment you will now endure reflects upon Him that He's an unrighteous God. No argument like that will be able to be made. Because not only will you be held accountable for every single sin you have ever committed and ever thought or thought about committing. You will be held accountable for even what you hear today. If this was the only time you ever heard anything proclaimed out of the Word of God, that would be enough. God is not obligated to give anyone any witness of Himself. And yet on this day, witness is born to Him. And that itself will be enough to condemn you forever if you reject the Lord's Messiah. So we see justice being carried out through the will of the King and the will of God against His enemies. But lastly, let us also consider the theme of the evangelism of the servant. The evangelism of the servant. After calling on the Lord to judge his enemies, we find at the very end of the psalm that David views his vindication as an opportunity and a reason for the righteous. That those who, who love David, for the righteous to praise and give glory to God. He says in verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness. They, they see in David, they see in the Lord's servant righteousness. Let them who delight in my righteousness, let them shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. David, David's salvation by the hand of God becomes the heart of the message that those who love Him then speak about. Our God, Yahweh, is a great God. He is greater than all other gods. And their neighbors, when they're asking them, why would you say something like that? Why would you say that Yahweh is a good God? What makes Him so great? They then respond because He delights in His servant. He has established His throne. 
He has made His kingdom great and wonderful, and all who are in it are blessed. And we find that the righteous are also taking their cues in what they say from the servant himself. Because we find David saying the very same things. For example, in verse 28 he says, Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Or if you skip back to verse 18, when he is rescued from destruction, he says, I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. David himself, as the servant of the Lord, must speak. He's compelled to speak. He has to speak. God has done such great things for him that he, he is compelled and driven to open his mouth and to tell of the wonders and the praise of God. And this then leads to others who love David and who love his God to repeat the same message, the same gospel around them chiefly because their king has been exalted and because they delight in their king's righteousness. And this is what the Lord Jesus leads His people even today to do as well. Jesus Himself preached the good news of the kingdom. And that good news included both the fact of God's righteousness in His judgments and the fact that He is righteous in His gracious and saving works towards sinners. His message encompassed both of those proclamations. He proclaimed that God was able to cast both body and soul into hell. He proclaimed that as the executor of God's judgments, He would declare to many, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. When the Gospel writers are saying that He's going about from town to town, city to city, region to region, proclaiming the good news of the Kingdom, those proclamations are included. It comes with both warnings for obstinate rebellion as well as promises of salvation for the sinner who repents. He proclaimed this message as well. He proclaimed that the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. He proclaimed that He would never lose a single one of His sheep and that no one could ever snatch them from His hands. He proclaimed that sinners can be forgiven of their sins by trusting in Him. And He proclaimed that whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. Right? That's, that's judgment and that's salvation together. The good news, proclamation of the kingdom. Jesus' proclamation of the gospel centered around himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. It centered around his death, burial, resurrection on behalf of sinners and his exaltation to the right hand of God. And likewise, we who have come to know Him and who delight in His righteousness are to take our cues from what He proclaimed and we are to continue to proclaim the same thing. We don't modify the message. We don't lighten the message. We don't change the message. We preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. It doesn't matter how many business coaches are out there or what sort of new fad comes around that says sinners may not like hearing about sin. <laughs> That's obvious. But when you have cancer, you don't like to hear that diagnosis either. 
there's no way to treat it unless you know about it. So you've got to know the full counsel of God, and we must proclaim it. We are given a task in the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations. And this is not a task that is reserved for just an exclusive small group of Christians on a distant mission field somewhere. Though that certainly does include them. And we want to support that work as much as we can. But it is also given to me and it is given to you and everyone who bears the name of Christ to carry with us wherever we go. There is no such thing as a non-disciple-making Christian. That's a contradiction in biblical terms. We are to make disciples everywhere. We are to make disciples everywhere. Perhaps first and foremost in our homes. Mothers, I think you need to know especially because of how our culture so denigrates motherhood that your work in the home, raising your children and teaching them to know and love Christ is no trivial matter. That's not a waste of life or waste of time. It is carrying out and fulfilling the Lord's command given to you. So no matter how much the world has to say or or wants to say that you can't find any value in the home, you need to reject that and believe in the Word of God. That's your mission field. Your most closest mission field. And fathers, of course, it is the same for you. It begins in our homes. Teaching the Word of God. Modeling the Word of God by the grace of God. We are to make disciples in the church. Make disciples of those around us wherever we can and however we have the opportunity. We are to tell the world, great is God the Lord. And why is He great? He is great ultimately because He delights in His servant. He has exalted Him as the King of kings and because He loves His servant, He loves all those who are joined to His servant, married to His servant, united to His servant by faith. And the salvation that He gives to His servant, He will likewise give to those who love the servant. If we are in Christ, the Lord will contend for us. He will subdue all enemies. He will put them to shame. He will send out His angels to gather all causes of sin out of His kingdom so that what will remain will be only the sons of the kingdom shining bright like the sun. And the glory of the Lord will be there. And He will dwell with us and we will dwell with Him. That is... His ultimate grand promise given to all of the heirs of the kingdom. That there will be no sin. There will be life everlasting. And you and I in Christ will dwell in the presence of God forever and ever. This is why the Lord is great. So let us exalt Him together. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, we thank You for Your promises. And most especially, we are grateful that You were and are most especially good to Your servant King. And in and through Your plan and intention to exalt Him, And to give Him all authority. To place Him at the head of all tables. And Your intention to make much of Him, salvation has come to us. And so Lord, we desire to
join in that work of bringing glory to Christ the King. Because we know that when we labor for His glory, it abounds most especially to our good. So Lord, make us a people who are accounted among the righteous, who do not trust in a righteousness of our own, but who rejoice in the righteousness of our King. We ask in Jesus' name.